Amen. Can we just thank these guys for leading us in worship this morning? All right. Fantastic. Give your Bibles. I want you to open those to Second Chronicles chapter seven. If you are a first timer with us, we are in the midst of a series entitled "Straight Out of Context." We don't typically name our sermon series after '90s rap songs, but we felt like this would be a good time to do that. Uh, as you're turning there. Uh, as you're turning there, I shared uh, just a few weeks ago, we are, uh, as a family, we've been here a little over 13 months now, and uh, it's, been, it's been fun. There have also been some very interesting aspects of that. For instance, when Jared and I started having conversations about the possibility of us moving to Lake Jackson, he, he let me know about the people who lived here, and he let me know that the bulk of the residents here were in some way, shape, or form connected to one of the, the plants. And he then proceeded to tell me, that means that we have lots of engineers in our church. So, just so we can do a little bit of an evaluation, if you are or were an engineer, could you just kind of raise your hand? Alright, so, so look around. Okay, if you are connected in some way to an engineer, could you raise your hand? If you are afraid of engineers, could you raise your hand? I, I sat in a, a meeting the other day and I'm listening to these engineers who, who I love talk and then there was a two-syllable word that I've decided is going to be a bad word that came up. It was the word spreadsheet. And, and when this word came up, there was joy and glee and almost idolatry on a couple of their faces. As we talked through this, one of the phrases that I learned very early here when, when as uh, a new resident in town is that engineers like to know why things happen. They like to know why things happen so much that there is a term for it. Root, say it with me, cause, analysis. One, one more time, root, cause, Analysis, so that, so that your wives can hear you in the back, gentlemen. Root cause analysis. Uh, the, the definition of that, according to Google, not on a spreadsheet, but Google, is a useful process for understanding and solving a problem. Figuring out what negative events are occurring. Then, look at the complex systems around those problems. Identify the key points of failure. Finally, determine solutions to address those key points or the root causes. And I'll be root truthful with you. As I look in these faces this morning, there is more joy on some of your faces than there ever is when I read the Bible. And it makes me uncomfortable. So there is a cause... And we have to find out what the cause is. Because until we find out what the cause is, then the effects, they're going to keep mounting. Had conversations with some of these guys after the flood last August. That ruined a cheeseburger for me. It was really, really difficult. Just to think through what causes things to happen. But we apply this to our children. 
You, you take your kid, you, you are having a conversation with them uh, about what has taken place, and the first thing you try to get them to, um, as they evaluate their poor behavior, you try to get them to see, figure out, why do you think you're in here with me right now? If you ever had that conversation with your kid, just wave at me, let me know. Why do you think you're in here? Not what did you, why are you in here? And then the next question that you ask when they tell you that they inevitably punched their brother or their sister with a car uh, is, why did you do that? You keep going lower and lower and lower. Now, I say all of that to say that's a really great thing for us to look at. You see this happen and it causes this to happen. But when we look at the Bible sometimes, we try to apply those principles to things that we see in Scripture. And if we're not careful, we can miss God and what He's doing because we want to be able to systematically dissect how and why it's happening. And we try to take this cosmic God who is eternal and inexplicable. That's not a word we use in songs. I'm hoping Jared will write one. It is this idea of God who is vast and break him into a system, be able to... Describe why he does what he does. Our verse for today is in Second Chronicles chapter 7, 14. It is a verse that is historically misinterpreted. Reading from verse 14. It says this, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and they will pray. And they will seek my face. And turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. And I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. Now every week I've looked at different translations of these verses. Because sometimes our misinterpretation comes with the translation. Let's just look. The King James English reads, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So pretty similar. The, the message reads this. Not, not a translation, a paraphrase. Reads this. And my my people, my God-defined people, I love that, respond by humbling themselves, praying, seeking my face, and turn their backs on their wicked lives. I'll be there ready for you. I'll listen from heaven. I'll forgive their sins. I'll restore their land to health. The New Living Translation, which some argue is not a translation, though they call themselves a translation, which is a preacher thing. Uh, anyway, then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and they will pray and they will seek my face and they will turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and restore their land. Well, it seems like these are all pretty similar. It seems like we've got the same consistent theme that's there. And it's the it doesn't seem like our translation, as it did with the book of Jeremiah, when we looked at 29.11, we struggle with the word prosperity because it doesn't always bounce back and forth. But all of these have very similar frames and patterns. So, what happens with Second Chronicles 7? 
What makes 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 a, a verse that we go to? Now this is not a verse that we, as I've said every week, we don't tattoo this one. This isn't a verse that we want on our bicep. What makes this verse one that's misused? Well, I asked a friend last night, we were having a conversation about this series. I want you to think through a time in the history of our nation where something terrible happened. That's when you see this verse. I want you to consider your Pinterest feed. I don't have a Pinterest feed. That's a side note. But consider what Pinterest looks like or someone's Instagram if there is any type of atrocity here in our country. This verse is misused because we've taken the concept of land and we've not looked at to, as to why God would say these things to the nation of Israel. And we miss that though these things that God is calling Israel to do are incredibly important for every believer, their landing spot for Christians in 2018 is not the landing spot that you would place on the nation of Israel so many years ago. So matter, no matter how much we want to use pictures of Betsy Ross sewing this on the back of an American flag, this isn't about America because God's goal is not America. It's much bigger than that. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we have to look at a, a few things as we consider this notion of root cause analysis as we look as to why God would say the things that he has said. The first thing that we would see is that Israel had concern about the covenant. If you're unfamiliar, let, let me give you a little bit of a, of, a, of a backdrop here as we look at the text. You have the, the nation... Uh, of Israel, they did not have a king because God was going to be their king. God's going to lead them. God's going to direct them. God's going to guide them. But Israel is very much like many of us. They looked around and they said, oh, but Libya has what they want. And Babylon has their king. And all of these other nations have a figurehead God. We would like to have the figurehead. We want the Nikes, God, that everybody else seems to have. Could you give us that? So God goes into the work of establishing a king for them. And he establishes a guy named Saul, who was a pretty lame king. Sadly enough, he's one of the better kings in the history of Israel. And he was a lame -o. We would not want him to king us, if we can use that as a verb. Eventually, God puts into place King David. When God puts into place King David, David is the king. And he reigns and rules. And the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. But even with that, you've got David making mistakes and having children with women that he is taking advantage of. David has a son named Solomon. 
We know him as the wisest man in history. He also had more wives and concubines than anyone else in history. And I really think those two things work against each other, but I'm just going to go with what the Bible says. And we see this, that, that Solomon's wisdom, when we get to Second Chronicles, the first thing we see, chapter 1, is all about his wisdom. The second thing that we see is in three to four chapters, we see the building of the temple. Some argue that it took around 20 years. And then in chapter 6, we see Solomon talking to God in the temple. So the temple seems to be a major place for the Jewish faith. That's why we look through the scriptures and we see it used synonymously with the idea of seeking after the, the face of God means you turn your attention towards the temple. We would look to the temple. We would fix our gaze on the temple. So we see this take place. Israel has concern about a covenant. That's why Solomon's prayer in chapter 6 is so detailed. Go with me, Second Chronicles chapter 6. We're going to be in a lot of the Bible today uh, and the words of Smokey and the Bandit. As a friend of mine likes to say, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. But we're going to pick up in verse 24. All of you over 45 caught that and the rest of you, thank you for your time, energy, and effort. Verse 24. We're going to look through Solomon's prayer. As to what he wanted to see God do. Because Solomon was concerned about the covenant. Because God had loved his father David so much. Will this covenant carry over? And Solomon begins to ask questions of God. Very specific, strategic, intentional questions. Hey God. Verse 24. God, if your people... Israel are defeated before you, before the enemy, because they have sinned against you. And they turn and acknowledge your name, and they pray and they plead with you in this house. Then they hear from heaven, and then you hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. This is concern. This is Solomon laying out his concerns to the Lord. Verse 26 God, when heaven is shut up, and there's no rain because they've sinned against you. If they pray towards this place and they acknowledge your name and they turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and you grant rain upon their land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. God, we, I just need to be reminded because I've, I've built this temple, but if you're not going to be present in the temple, then it doesn't matter. I've just got a building. I need you, God, to remind me that your covenant has not been removed from me. Verse 28, if there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew, mildew must have been a big deal in the Bible, mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man and all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hand towards this house then God, you've made a covenant with us. So I want you to hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose, whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you only know the hearts of the children of mankind. But 32, likewise God, when a foreigner, 
We've got a covenant with you, but if a foreigner rolls into our midst, he's not of your people, but he comes from a faraway journey, from a faraway country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arms, when he comes and prays towards your house, see that again? Seeking God's face, looking to the temple. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to in order that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. Because God, we've built this temple, but we really need you. But this is where we meet with you. If your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to you towards this city that you have chosen the house I've built for your name then hear from heaven and pray their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause because God we, we need you. We need this covenant you've made with us to stand secure. Keep going. Verse 36 If they sin against you no, make no doubt they will sin. There is no one who does not sin Solomon said. Or the writer says. And you are angry with them. And you give them to an enemy. So that you are carried away captive to a land far or, or near. If they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive. And they repent and they plead with you in the land. Of their captivity. Saying we, we've sinned and we've acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their hearts and with all their souls. In the land of their captivity. To which they were carried captive. And they pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers. The city that you've chosen. The house that I've built for your name. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Their prayer, their pleas. And maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now God let your eyes be open. Because we are in covenant. Please don't forget your covenant. And now arise O Lord God. And go to your resting place. You and the ark of your, of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Solomon gets that he's in covenant with God. And he wants God to move. Most of us want God to move. We just don't want to want to ask him to. When you read through scriptures as to prayers, many of them are lengthy. Many of them take long portions of the text up. Yet we can't be bothered to pray. But we're in covenant. And Israel and Solomon were concerned that God would keep his covenant. But God has already given us a covenant that is greater. If you're a note taker, write this passage down. It's Hebrews chapter 9. Where we hear about the covenant that you and I are in with God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest... Of the good things that have come. Than through the greater and more perfect tent. Not made with hands. It's not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of blood of goats and calves. But by means of his own blood. 
thus securing an eternal redemption. Solomon meets with them through blood sacrifice. You actually see that in Second Chronicles 7 verse 4. 7 verse 4. The king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen. That's a, big, that's a lot of oxen. 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts. The Levites also were the instruments for music to the, king, to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry, opposite them the priests stood. Trumpets and all of Israel stood. The idea of offering up sacrifice is obviously present in both. But what we find as New Testament Christians is not that we are hoping that God will keep a covenant. We are being held by the fact that He has. Jesus. Verse 13. If the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of of defiled persons with ashes of of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh... How much more with the blood of Jesus through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first one. We, as New Testament believers, when we think about these ways to approach God, we are approaching Jesus. When this text says that we are to seek the face of God, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it's saying to turn toward the temple. We don't turn towards a temple that is built. We turn towards a temple that breathes the person of Jesus. The God of all creation. Who took the idea of the temple and fulfilled it. So much so that after he had flipped tables over. Tells these men at the second temple. After that destroyed this temple. And I'll rebuild it in three days. That's in John chapter 2. You you hear that and they think Jesus is crazy because they're like, it took us 46 years to build this temple. But Jesus is talking about his resurrection. Our temple lives and breathes. He's who we turn to. The Bible prayers, they're really thorough. Solomon's prayer is thorough. Do you know where we land and what causes great struggle for us as believers? That we like to land on the idea that God knows our heart. So I'll trust Him to do what I need Him to do and I'll go do what I want. And that's not modeled for us anywhere in the Bible. Tim Keller, pastor in New York much like here, says this, one of the problems with ordinary Christians is they are neither happy or sad enough. We are not convicted enough about our own sin. We are not experiencing deep repentance. Therefore, we do not experience high assurance. We want God to move. 
We just don't want to have to bother to ask him to. Israel longed to be, we also see this, that Israel, as we said earlier, has longed to be a state. They wanted to be a nation like the other nations of the world. Their goal was to be established and comparable and a comparable nation to the rest of what surrounded the known world in biblical days. They were surrounded by enemies and much of their maligned existence came down to this. When they looked to their left and looked to their right and looked to their front and looked to their back, everything that was around them was something that they wanted because they missed the God that they had. And God has said this to us as a, as a people who look at him. That though Israel longed to be a state, we will always live as strangers in this world. This world is not our home. First Peter, is, Peter says this, because he wrote First Peter. Very general guy, just naming things correctly. And he says this, You are chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. The marvelous light we're running. Out of darkness, out of shame. Lift your hands and spin around. That's a song. Uh, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Again, New Covenant Christians, we see this transition from the nation-state of Israel to God's holy people in the New Testament. Peter's writing to those who have, no fa- who have a faith in Jesus that is not rooted in their, in their Jewish existence. And he says this, you were not a people. You were one of the surrounding nations. But now you have been drawn into what God offers as His kingdom. Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. That doesn't sound great. But now you have received mercy. All of this is if we're lining things up on a compare and contrast chart. We compare favorably to what Israel is until we get to verse 11. Go with me. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners. uh Uh-oh. And exiles... To abstain from the passions of your flesh, which war against your soul. So the nation of Israel has this home that they go to. And now, as New Testament believers, we don't have that home. We know Him. Our home is the presence of God given to us by Jesus. God calling us. To see that we have a better promise. Second Chronicles, let's, let's go back. Verse 7, let's look at what Solomon did. He consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For where he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offering, because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering. Solomon held the feast for seven days. A great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the, to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. On the twenty-third day of the seventh month he sent the people away from, 
to their homes joy and glad heart for the prosperity God had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel and to his people. Again, we see the idea that the nation of Israel offered up their sacrifice at a place. All of these things come together into a large pool for us as believers in the New Testament. And all of these things need to be taken into account when we look at a verse that would make us think that God is going to be riding an American eagle with an American flag caped on his back. The Bible does not teach us that about God. The Bible teaches us not that God is limited and locked into one nation... But that God's end goal is for every tribe, tongue, and nation to come to know the person of Jesus. That God's hope for the world will not be manifest by the most powerful country in the world. But will be manifest by the brokenness of his own son on the cross. These Old Testament sacrifices are taking us to the bigger, better, more defined picture of Jesus. So when we talk about what happens in these next few verses, we are not talking about us seeking after God to fix our country. We're asking God to fix the hearts of Christians who are cold and calloused and far from Him. That's what we ask God to do. And if we're asking God to do less than that, then ask for more. 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. Finished decorating. Knocked out. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to him in the night and said to him, I've chosen this place. I've heard your prayer. And I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. This will do, is what God says. This will work. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or I command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. This is God going back to Solomon's prayer from chapter 6. Things that Solomon had acknowledged. Saying, understand this. As the God of the universe, everything that takes place, takes place because I allow it to. But when those things happen, because we're in covenant. We are in established relationship. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray 
and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. This is God's direction as to how He will respond because of the covenant that He has with the nation of Israel. The covenant that God has with us has the same things that lean in. Go with me. God would be a God that would have for you and for me to look at my wrongdoing. If you've ever done wrong, raise your hand. If your hand's not up, you're doing wrong now, so add your hand to the list. God would be a God who has His people, those who know Him, who are in covenant with Him, not through 22,000 bulls and 12,000 ox and probably a couple of chickens, but through the shed blood of Jesus to humble ourselves, to pray, and to seek His face. Now, as we said earlier, this is an analogy for turn towards the temple. For us, it is turn to a better place. Turn towards Jesus. If those who are in relationship with me would humble themselves and pray and turn themselves towards Jesus and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear you. I'll forgive you. And I'll do a work among you. So we as believers look at this text and we get a chance to see that God has called us to come to Him, to talk to Him, to pray to Him, to posture ourselves physically before Him, to ask Him to move among us. The big Bible word, or not even a Bible word, but the big Baptist word that we used when I was a kid was revival. And when you would go into revival, certain things would happen. There was more than likely going to be a youth night and a children's night, and the youth night involved pizza, and none of that pizza had the cheese spread properly, which was always problematic, because when you cook pizza in bulk, it never looks right. Uh, and there would be a children's night, and there would may even be a, a game night where people shot animals, and they fed those animals to the men. Revivals included lots and lots of, uh, of variants. And they would typically bring in a preacher to preach, and they would bring in special music. Special music. We can work through that later. But we would bring in musicians and we would have this set time where we're going to hear together from God's Word. Now, what's taking place there is not bad. It's just not revival. It's a conference. Revival takes place in my heart and in yours 
when I realize that I, God has not said, I'm going to bring in a guest speaker and I'm going to bring in a music team and, I, and I'm going to bring in a taco night and I'm going to bring in all of these things. God has not said, if you'll do these things, because that's the list that we like to make. Or even for us in 2018, where we don't do revival event and that event and this event. And if I make sure that this event happens, then God will do a major work in us. The things that God gives us to see real revival take place are never necessarily things that I can do by picking up my phone. They're not things that happen when I send text messages to make sure that I've got musicians lined up or, or speakers lined up or preachers lined up or, or whomever lined up. Revival takes place in God's Word when God's people say, God, we forgot that we need you, so we want to remember that. So I want to I lay my life out before you, God. I, I just want you to do stuff because my heart's wicked. It's deceitfully wicked. It's evil. If you're not moving in my midst. And if I've grown cold to you, God. Just warm me towards you. So what happens with real revival? Do, is it meetings? No, it, it's, it's this. Tim Keller argues that it for us as believers, will, things that you will see happen when God begins to move in the midst of his people in real revival is you will see... You will see Christians who are distant from the Lord, warm towards Him. You will see those who claim to be Christians who are not converted. And you will see those who are really hard to explain as to why they would come to salvation. You see lost people come to salvation that we can't explain in our own power. Marks of this revival would be that your corporate worship, according to Keller, that your singing is bold and decorative and that there is a sense of the presence of God that you have a hard time describing because God's presence is in your midst. God talks about the revival of, of His... When we look into God's Word and we see the, the idea of God moving among us, you see other concepts like when we pray... Our concentration is not on the amen. It's us saying to God, we want you to do something. And that's not knocking any of those things. As a matter of fact, the Lord has provided for my family by me preaching at what people call revivals for a long time. But in the middle of that, I learned that I wasn't the reviver. That us turning and seeing Jesus for all that he says he is, that's when revival happens. And it means that God does a healing in the souls of his people. And that will matriculate into interactions with those who aren't his yet. So let's beg God to revive us to do a bigger, better work. Why don't you bow your heads with me this morning?
Can I just ask before we begin to sing with Jared, because that's what we like to do, because Jared's fun to sing with. Can we take just a few minutes to pray? I don't know what that's going to look like for us. But what I do know that it would be helpful, it doesn't need to look like what we look like right now. So I invite you to posture yourself physically. For you, that may mean that you kneel at your chair. That may mean for you that this space that we chose to open up in the back of our room, you just go back there. That may mean you come to the front of the room, and that's okay because we've got lots of background that talks about fronts of rooms here. That may mean you come here and you kneel. That may mean that you look to the friend next to you and say, can we just pray together? It just means that we physically, physically, posture ourselves before the Lord this morning and ask Him to move among our people. Now, there are some of us that may even have a hard time with this. And there was a time in my life when, when I did. The idea of posturing myself. And here's why. There have been times for me when I struggle more with what a Calvinist should do than what a Christian should. So but for, for those of us who love Jesus, and I, I know lots of you do, can we physically get into a place where we're saying, God, I, I just need you to move uh, among us. Move in our people, move in our church, move in our souls. And talk to Him for a few minutes. We have a group of people who pray over our worship service every week now. And I'm so grateful for it because it sets up what takes place in here. Just ask God to move And whatever is going on in your own heart and whatever needs to be going on in in the hearts of our people, just pray, God, move. Just however you need to pray that move. So posture yourself now physically. Kneel, move, stand, whatever. Just different than what you look like. Go.
Now, now right where you are, I, I know that posture may be different for you, and this may be even a little more different. Just right where you are, can you just begin to whisper to the Lord aloud, asking Him to, to bring revival in the midst of our church? Just pray aloud. Let's do that for 45 seconds to a minute. Go, go. God, we want to see you move. God, we want to hear from you. We want you to heal us. We want you to use us. Can we just pray aloud for that right now? Go. ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of God and he is the exact imprint of God's nature he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is in more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angel, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And you and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but God, you will remain. That will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will, will be changed, but God, you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, footstool for you? They're all ministering spirits. But we have Jesus. Let's be people who worship Jesus. Let's sing together. <laughs>